0: Hello, and welcome to Rider Mother Monster. I'm your host, Lara Ehrlich, and tonight's guest is Caroline Lovett. Writer Mother Monster conversations are streamed live on Facebook, YouTube, and Twitter, and then released as an audio podcast on all major platforms and archived as a video and audio on the website. As always, please chat with us during the interview, and we'll weave your comments into our conversation. A special thanks to our sponsors and patrons listed on the Writer Mother Monster website. Your support helps make this show possible. And if you enjoy the episode, please consider becoming a patron or patroness to help keep the podcast going. Look for details at writermothermonster.com. Now I'm excited to introduce Caroline. Caroline Levitt is the New York Times bestselling author of 13 novels, including With or Without You and Cruel, Beautiful World. She is also the co-founder of A Mighty Blaze, a blogger and columnist for Psychology Today, and a book critic for for People magazine. A New York Foundation of the Arts fellow, she was long listed for the Maine Reader's Prize and was a Sundance Screenwriting Lab finalist. She lives in Hoboken and has a 26-year-old son. She describes writer motherhood in three words as exhilarating, anxious joy. Now, please join me in welcoming Caroline.
1: Thank you so much. I'm so happy to be here. I just I love the whole title of the show, "Writer Mother Monster." It sort of encompasses everything. Absolutely. Thank you, Caroline, and thank you for joining us. It's I know I've
0: wanted to have you on for so long, so this is a real pleasure. This is great.
1: This is great. Thank you for having me again. Of
0: course. Now let's start with those those three words that you chose: exhilarating, anxious, joy. Tell me about those three words.
1: Well, the acceleration was it took me a really long time to come to feeling that I wanted to be a mother because I had sort of a difficult childhood myself. And when I decided that I wanted to get pregnant and have a child, uh, a lot of my writer friends said, well, there goes another book. And I said, what are you talking about? And he said, you're going to be so exhausted, You will never have time to write and being stubborn. I said, no, I don't, I don't believe that. I don't believe that's true. So I went ahead and I had my son and as we were talking before the show, um, It was, it was exhilarating. It was, it didn't stop me from writing. The only difference was I would have Max's little white bassinet right here. He would sleep for two hours and then I would quickly write. Then he would wake up and I would play with him for two hours. And it went like that and every single stage of motherhood has just been extraordinary. Like just extraordinary. I wouldn't, I wouldn't change it for anything. The anxiety part of it of course is You know, I worried all the time that I was gonna drop him or there was one time I he one time I was supposed to give him eye drops and I accidentally picked up canker sore medicine by mistake and I caught it and I didn't do it, but to this day I still feel anxious about it. And I want to tell any mother out there that, you know, my son's 26. I'm still anxious. I still worry about him, even though he's an adult. I don't think it ever stops. And then, of course, there's just the joy. It's just amazing to have helped to create a human and to see that human out in the world doing these amazing things. And it, it's just been great. It's just been great.
0: And you were telling me before the interview what he does. Tell us what Max
1: does. Max was a number three chess champ in New, in all of New Jersey when he was a little boy. And so now he's teaching chess in Manhattan at schools and to private clients. He's also an actor. Uh, he writes a little bit, screenwriter, and he works at the Angelica Film Center. And, uh, he lives in Brooklyn and he's, you know, he's doing great. He's funny. He's smart. He's, We got really, really lucky. We got really lucky.
0: I don't think we've had anyone who's in any way affiliated with chess on the show before, so that's the
1: first. Oh, he's, when he was five, we were in the park and there was a chess board and there was a chess teacher there and he was teaching people the rudiments and Max wanted to learn. And I sat down with him and we didn't get up for five hours and the chess teacher came over and said, you do know you've both been here for five hours. And I said, oh, I, didn't even realize it and Max he asked Max do you want to learn and Max said oh yeah yeah yeah." and he started learning and within weeks he was beating me he he just has the right mindset for that that's pretty
0: incredible Yeah. Yeah. yeah yeah tell me about so you said that you weren't sure if you wanted to become a mother um and that really resonated with me I for a long time Thought I would never want to have children even oh, after really? having been married for five years and it took Wow. And,
1: wow. and, um,
0: and, and as you said, that you were sort of bombarded or, or surrounded by folks who said that once you become a mother, there goes your writing career, your creativity, which is in part why I started this show to show that it is
1: possible. And I love that you did. I love that you did. Yeah, I just, You know there were all these messages of like what you should do and on the other side of course there were messages from my mother and my husband's mother about you know the job of a woman is to be a mom and you stay home and writing is your hobby you know hobby which always irritated me and I, you know when i when I met Jeff my husband, I told him, "Look, if you want to have kids, you're probably with the wrong person because i I really don't. And then, after about two years of marriage, it was a combination of just being really happy um, and I maybe it was biology kicking in because I started noticing babies and thinking, oh i want I want one. I really want one and you know, so we decided to have one, and I best decision ever. I wish I had started earlier so I could have had more.
0: But, You know, I feel the same way. What? I was a yeah. geriatric, quote unquote, mother. Oh um, yeah, me too. you too geriatric. I know. I'm so old at thirty, whatever it was, but uh, <laughs> yeah. Tell me a little bit more about that decision and. Um, the years when you didn't think you wanted to have a child, and you said that was in part because of your own childhood, and yes. you just sort of unpack that for me a little bit.
1: It was from my, my own childhood. My family was very traditional, and they believed that I have an older sister that we should both be just wives and mothers, and if you have a job, you do a female job, which is you can be a nurse but not a doctor. You can be a school teacher, preferably elementary grade. Um, but being a writer it's it's a hobby. It's a hobby which always irritated me. Um I was always being compared to my older sister who did those things. She got married young, she became a preschool teacher she had two kids right away and I thought that's not for me I want to be wild and the more I said that the more angry my parents were with me and so the more I acted out and I was very happy to get out of the suburbs and part of not wanting a child had to do with domesticity I hated being in the suburbs I just hated it I moved to New York City as soon as I could and I took real pride in having the worst apartment in all of Manhattan because it was mine and people would come in and say you know you could do a lot with this and I'd say no I'm not going to I never want a house I never want a nice apartment or a lot. I just want a place to sleep so I can go on and have adventures so when I met Jeff um, we were living in Manhattan in one of those crummy apartments and we both needed a off, an office and then when I started thinking well maybe I want to have kids Jeff said well you know then we really need we're going to need at least three or four bedrooms and I said fine I'll find it in Manhattan and of course in Manhattan that's like you know millions 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 you just can't afford it so at that time I guess it was the early 90s um you could live in Brooklyn which I really, you know, Brooklyn wasn't cool then. You could live in Brooklyn or you could live in Hoboken. I didn't want to live in either. And all my friends said, oh, you don't want to live in Brooklyn. You don't want to live in Hoboken. Nobody will come and visit you. And what gave, made me the decision was the subway from Brooklyn to Manhattan was like 45 minutes. The subway from Hoboken to Manhattan was 10, but I also thought that we would never find a place to live, so I, you know, I I didn't think much of it, but we found, uh, in Hoboken in the 90s, had these beautiful old brownstones that you could get for something ridiculous, like $90,000 for a four-story brownstone, and there were 32 houses, and we found one, and I thought, oh, great, now I have to live in it and have a kitchen. <laughs> And I found that I began to love it, and the house seemed like it loved me back. And I began to love having all the space and the comfort and to have a home, and that sort of helped with my nesting instinct as far as having a child. You know, I love that a family home. The things that I didn't like, the only things that I don't have that my family would have liked is I don't live in a suburb. I still live in a city, albeit a small city.
0: <laughs> we were talking before the show about household chores, <laughs> sort of comparing which ones we hate the most. But uh, <laughs> as you were talking about, and you used the words domesticity and wildness, and that. Um, spoke to my soul, that tension between domesticity and wildness. Yeah. And so, how do you, as a writer and a, mo- a mother and a monster, sort of, <laughs> um, sort of, uh, bring together the wild part of yourself and the part of yourself that has to do things like, as we were saying, laundry or, um, <gasps> dishes?
1: <laughs> well, you and I were talking about it, and we're both of the same. Cut, and that neither one of us ever separates clothes for laundry, I just throw them in, throw them in the dryer, nothing gets ironed um, same thing with my husband will take the dishes out of the dishwasher in terms of household stuff. Um, I was very careful not to have. A suburban looking house. I mean, our house is really eclectic. There's like still like old toys of Max's around and artwork. There's my friend's artwork and there's all this crazy stuff everywhere. I'm very lackadaisical about cleaning because I feel that, you know what, life is too short. I'd rather like spend time with my son when he was here. And so what if laundry doesn't get done or so what this dishes in the sink. It doesn't really matter. Like it's much better to like spend that half hour you might have spent scrubbing a pot or whatever playing a game with your child or, you know, watching a movie with your husband. It's its because those are the movies, those are the moments that you remember and that feed you. And also, I think, that keep you young, that really keep you, like, alive and interested and interesting.
0: Yeah. How do you find adventure now? Are you still as adventurous as you were as a young person?
1: Well, I'm not as adventurous. I mean, when I was in my, when I was in college, I would hitchhike. I mean, I was the one who I would get, I would have truck drivers pick me up. There was a station wagon full of Hells Angels. I would, I would just go there. I mean, I was, I was crazy. I dabbled in drugs until I was 23 and then I stopped. Um, I just, you know, I want it to be really adventurous. Now adventure is different because, well, first of all, with Jeff, I have a playmate. When we take it, when we take vacations, we don't go to a beach and lie in the sand. We go to Hong Kong. <laughs> we will go to, we went to Istanbul. And as soon as we hit the ground, we hit the ground running we like want to go to when we were in mexico city we saw mexican wrestlers while everybody else was saying well didn't you go to the beach we said no we saw these famous mexican wrestlers dress up and throw themselves out of the ring and um we live in you know living in new york there's all kinds of things to do and the crazier they are the better we like it. And we exposed Max to all that stuff. And he seems to like it too. So, I mean, I used to, before the pandemic, Max and I would always go to virtual reality <laughs> and, um, you know, play with that and do that for hours. And it was, it was fun. It was really fun.
0: I love that. We just took my daughter to um, Mass MoCA in uh, Massachusetts, oh, That big oh, modern wonderful. And they had a virtual reality. Wasn't it fun? Yes, it was so much fun. And it was 15 minutes only. And we wanted to sit there the whole time. But she got a kick out of it at six. So, yeah.
1: I love it. I love oh, it.
0: Yeah, I just love fun. it. <laughs> so let's talk logistics of writing. And you gave us a little hint of how you <laughs> continued to write, even with a small child. But take us through um, just how you managed to get work done. I mean, 13 novels. And is the new one
1: the 13th or the 14th? It's the 13th, the, the new 13th. one. It's not out yet. Um, yeah. Um, uh, well, I always, at first I always had to have a job job because I had it in my head that I could quit working job jobs when I had half a million in the bank. And that never happened. But so I always took jobs, you know, and on my lunch hours, I would write. And a lot of times people would, Leave Me Alone. I worked for many years at Macy's writing fashion copy, which was really fun. And I was a full time freelancer and they knew that some days I'd have to leave early or some days I just needed to write. And they were great. Then I worked for about five years for a Columbia House writing about movies. And that wasn't so great because they felt that, you know, if you're working, you should be working. And if you leave work at seven, it's half a day. And So I finally quit that job and then I realized I could have a steady income stream by teaching or doing manuscript developments. Um, I'm very sort of, OCD, and I do everything really fast. So I'm able to, in terms of being a book critic or doing manuscripts, I can read a whole book in a day or like a couple of hours and write it up. So that's not a problem. Manuscripts where most people might take a month or six weeks, I can do in two weeks because I'm just, I'm just like this. Except when it comes to writing my own novels, that takes a little longer. But um, I'm really careful to, I have to do my writing first. And so I always take at least three hours in the morning to do that. I, my goal is like three hours or four pages. Then I do the other stuff. Um, and I'm always sort of thinking of, you know, what I'm doing and what kind of work I'm doing. And it's, it doesn't seem like work so much because I'm sure you feel the same way. I love it. You know, I love it. It energizes me.
0: Absolutely. Is that part of what kept you going when I'm sure you were sleep deprived at the beginning and, you know, as kids get older there are other things that you have to do that take you away from
1: writing. So- <laughs> well, here, here is the story. After I had my, like, I was a geriatric pregnant pregnant woman and I had a perfect pregnancy I had easy easy blissful magical delivery and then three days later I got critically ill and I was at NYU uh, medical center and none of the doctors knew what was happening except they knew what they thought I was dying and in order to in order to try to figure it out what was going on, they put me in a medical coma for three and a half weeks. Um, they gave me all these, like, major operations, and nobody knew what was going on, just I was getting worse and worse and worse. Um, I, of course, didn't know anything that was going on. But My last memory was, you know, I was getting ready to go home, and I noticed that my stomach was kind of big and hard. And I thought, oh, that's weird. And then my next memory was waking up in the hospital bed, and there was a, big picture of Max as a baby on the wall in front of me and underneath it said mommy daddy and I miss you get well and I remember thinking what the hell (laughs) what is going on here so it turned out that um they really thought that I was that I was dying for some reason my blood they figured out that my blood was not clotting and they didn't know Why? It was just, you know, I was having bleeding in my muscles and they were afraid it was going to go to my brain. And there happened to be a a hematologist who was like 78 years old and she was ready to retire. And she said, I think I know what this is. It's a really rare disease, but we have to do this test to figure it out. And then, you said, no, it's too expensive to do the test. And my husband said, I don't care if it's a million dollars, do the test. So they did the test, and soon enough, that's what it was. It's kind of protein that after you give birth, sometimes your immune system can get glitchy, and mine did, and it stopped all my blood from clotting. So the treatment is just IV, lots of IVs, um, and lots of, like, Glue in your veins shut and all this stuff, so I was in the hospital for four months. first three months, they would not let me see my baby until, because they didn't know if it was catchy or whatever, so I told them if they didn't let me see my child i wasn't i wasn't going to do any of their tests, and I really protested, and so they brought the baby in, who of course had no idea who I was, that upset me. And then my husband did this amazingly sweet, lovely thing where he took videos of Max and he brought them in and the nurses were so great. The nurses opened up their training room and they let me come in so I could sit there for two hours and just watch all these videos of, you know, Max's first bath, his first shift to the pediatrician, and everybody was crying. So when I finally was better, and I came home and here I am with this baby who's like nearly a year old and the baby doesn't know who I am. And when I try to reach for him, Max would scream and then I would feel terrible. So again, Jeff was really great and he said, well, you just need to bond. So what he would do is every day he would go out and leave me alone with this baby who didn't know me and it took us months but like finally there was a day where Max actually you know he reached for me and then we just became like so bonded that it was extraordinary so I forgot what the question was I've spoken so long no that that's the domesticity story that's the that's the story so of course I love him more than anything in the world wow
0: yeah, that's quite incredible and devastating. I'm so sorry you had yeah. to go through that.
1: Yeah. Well, you know, it worked out okay. You know, it's like, it's sort of like, I always feel like you can approach tragedy either by thinking this is the worst thing ever and what else is going to happen that's worse, or you can approach it in terms of, oh, how lucky I am. You know, the doctor saved my life. Um, I have a beautiful, healthy son. Oh, my marriage is great. I mean, I have my work. I mean, it it just worked out. So I tend to look at the lucky parts. Yeah, that's a good perspective.
0: Yeah. How, if at all, did um, that experience and then just the experience of motherhood work its way into your work?
1: <laughs> well, my last book, this book, um, With or Without You, is actually about a woman who – goes into coma and comes out differently. So that worked in and also part of her thing is almost always my heroines are always grappling with do I want to be a mother or don't I want to be a mother? And a lot of them they just don't want to be a mother. And um I don't have this book with me. There's there's one book I wrote it's this Tomorrow, which had a mother in it who wanted to be the best mother she possibly could. And no matter what she did, she was the worst. Mm-hmm. And she was accused of uh, Munchauser by proxy, accused of making her son worse so she could get the attention on her. And it was a really interesting thing for me to write um, because that definitely was not my sensibility. I just really wanted to protect my son from everything and you know, I my son has found his way in a lot of my books, not so that he would recognize himself, but just like what it's like to be what I know of what it's like to be a little boy, or what it's like to be, you know, an older kid. I've no idea what it's like to be a teenager. (laughs) What it's like to be a guy today in his twenties, but no, maybe I'll figure that out too later. <laughs>
0: <laughs> this feels like a good moment to invite you to read a little bit of one of your books, whichever one you sort of feel like is a good moment to share. Okay. Um, and I'll give you the whole screen in a second. So okay.
1: Um, okay. Oh, I'll read you about the Munchauser by Proxy. Okay. I'll just read, like, let read it a little bit. Um, yeah. April is the mother. She's determined to be the best mother ever. And Sam is her little boy who has asthma. The older Sam got, the worse his asthma got. But it wasn't just the disease that derailed Sam. It was the way it made him feel different. It's not right, April, his mother said. When Sam was seven and he came home crying because he wasn't chosen for the soccer team at school, April marched right into the Blue Cupcake Cafe and persuaded them to sponsor a soccer team. I'll do all the paperwork and publicity, and the only thing I want is to have Sam be on the team. The team made Sam the water boy, and he was so happy he slept in his blue cupcake soccer shirt. She brought home two tiny blue fish in a glass bowl and set it right on his dresser. Who needs a dog and cat? It doesn't matter with it if you have asthma or not. I bet you're the only boy with these two rare beauties. Sam's mouth formed in the maze, so, oh, asthma, April said, waving her hands. Why should we let that stop us? When he was wheezing, she'd tell him the prince and the pauper story, acting out the parts in different voices. She made faces until Sam smiled. But when Sam grew sicker, April got on the Internet. She started calling doctors and then healers and then shamans and miracle workers One day, April told her husband she had seen a woman who had told her that people with respiratory problems were troubled souls. What? Charlie said, our son's not troubled. He gets happy just seeing dandelions sprouting in the grass. And that's it for that section.
0: There we go. (laughs) Now we're back. (laughs) Now we're back. Thank you. You're welcome. And then, uh, I th- Ooh, you're getting some dings here. Um, yeah, and so I saw a little bit of, um, as you mentioned, anxiety in those pages. Tell us how anxiety, motherhood anxiety sort of comes through in your work.
1: Yes, there's a lot of motherhood anxiety because here's this, first of all, it, it's always been amazing to me to see my son from the time he was born till now because it's a whole different person. When you think about it, it is. In my case, it's a person I grew. He has my DNA. And I read recently that um, mothers always carry their sons, a little bit of their son's DNA in them, and that there might even be my cellular memories that are in my son. And that makes me anxious because I feel like, well, I don't want my son to be anxious like his mom. Um, But also it's, it's an extraordinary responsibility because, you know, I'm anxious about parenting a grown son is very different than parenting a child, as you will see, say, because you really have to let them go. You really have to realize that it's their life and what they're going to do and they're making their decisions and it's not your job to make those decisions for them. But that doesn't mean that I'm not anxious all the time about, is he okay? Is he happy? What's he doing? How can I help? Um, So it's a whole process of letting go. And that's anxiety. That's anxiety.
0: Yeah, very different from the story you shared with me before the interview. Maybe you could tell listeners about the eye drops.
1: Oh gosh, oh this is so terrible. Every time I think of it it makes me crazy. <laughs> yes, my son had he had like pink eye or something. I was supposed to get him eye drops and I was so tired and I walked into the be- bathroom. He was sitting down, and I went to get the eye drops and I uncappered them, unstoppered them, and I happened to look and it was actually this these this medicine for a canker sores. And if I had put that in his eye, it would have been really, really bad. And luckily I didn't, and I caught it. But to this day, I can't stop thinking about that. Like, how could I do that? Or like, what if something terrible happened? Um, It's those moments that I continually remember because there's so many, like, what if this happened? Or what if that happened? There was one moment where I was taking to Max to his acting class, which was in, it was near Times Square at a theater. And we stopped because Max wanted water and I was going to get a jar, a glass of water, a, you know, a bottle of water. And as soon as I turned around, the time it took for me to turn around, get the water, and turn back, Max was gone. And it's every mother's nightmare. And, you know, he popped up again in like two seconds and said, I'm here, Mom, I'm here. But, you know, for a mother, that two seconds is like every, it's like a lifetime. It's a lifetime. So, you know, that anxiety never leaves. Oh, no. <laughs> yeah. Yeah.
0: I'm also a very anxious person, and those what-ifs are haunting.
1: Uh,
0: so yeah, I, I, they're haunting. That, that, they, that they don't go away.
1: They don't go away because you think it could have been so worse, and I'm trying to train myself to think, well, yeah, but it turned out okay, and mm-hmm. it turned out better, and then you learned that if you're going to turn around to get a ball of water, make sure you have – a better grip <laughs> on your on your son. <laughs> yeah, I know. Um,
0: tell us a little bit about your other your other work with the Mighty Blaze and psychology psychology or psychiatry. I always get them confused. I, yeah,
1: it's psychology today. Um, psychology. Well, when the when the pandemic started, I was when they shut everything down. I was supposed to be on a plane that day going to Houston to give a speech in front of two hundred librarians, and Al Golpin called me up and said, "No, your whole tour's canceled." And I thought, But I learned a speech, you know, with hand movements and everything. So I recorded it and I sent it to Algonquin saying, "Eh, this is the speech I was going to give. And they said, oh, we love it. We're going to send it to all the librarians. So I started to think, you know what? I'm not giving up. I'm going to start a nothing is canceled virtual book tour for all the other authors. And I just posted about it on social media saying this is what I'm doing and why. If you're an author and you had your book tour canceled, just make a little video, three minutes tops, talk about your book, show the cover. You have to call out an independent bookstore you love, and you have to call out another author you love. And I thought, I'll get like 10. Well, I got 200 in the first week. And I was just overloaded and freaked out because I didn't know what to do. I was working constantly to get these videos up and running and advertising. Then I got a call from... Um, the books editor of Washington Post. And he said, Caroline, what are you doing? And I said, I don't know. I'm just doing it. And he said, well, we'll support you. So lucky for me, about a week later, I got a call from another author, Jenna Blum, who said, do you need help? I'm really good at technical stuff and this other stuff. And I said, oh, my God, please. Yes, help me, help me. So, and she was, she, um, She does all the hiring because we soon, like, just grew so, so huge. Um, We have an accountant. We have 40 passionate volunteers. We have, like, I think it's, like, 12 different programs now. Some are Mysteries. Some are Friday Frontliners, which are, you know, big names. I have a show on Wednesday called Lip Vic, which is just books I particularly like or I want to do. They now do... Uh, the Salem Lit Fest, we have merchandise, and as it began to get so, so big, I didn't have time to write, so I told Jenna, look, you can be the CEO, and I am happy to interview people and to get writers to come on, but the only thing I really want to do is interview people. I don't, I really don't want to have to go to meetings or do any technical stuff, and that's the stuff she loves, so it works out really well. It works out really well. Um, and psychology today is just um, they asked me if I wanted to write about family issues. So I do. <laughs> it's, it's really fun. It's really, really fun.
0: Can you tell us a little bit about um, the family issues that you write about?
1: oh boy um, well I wrote a lot about it's interesting because a lot of the times I start writing and I realize what I'm writing about um, I wrote about um, family is, I have a family member who is estranged from the rest of the family and it's, it's like a punch in my heart and I wrote about that and that made me like how to handle it that made me feel a lot better I wrote about being bullied as a child And in high school, and how I recently actually contacted two of the bullies who bullied me, and one of them became a friend of mine. You know, she explained, well, she had bullied me because her parents were alcoholics, and the other one blocked me. So that was kind of interesting. Um, You know, I write about, you know, I wrote a lot about my mom, how she was sort of a difficult woman. And she had hated my father, and then when my mother was ninety-three, she had to go into one of those retirement communities, and she didn't want to, but she fell in love. She fell in love for the first time, and she was with this guy Walter for four years until she died, and it was just the loveliest ending I can ever think of. And so I wrote about that, and you know I just write about you know how. You know, because I grew up in, growing up I always thought family and domesticity were just terrible. Then I had a child and I came to realize, no, 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 it's great. It's totally great. So those are the kinds
0: of things that I write. I love that. I love that. You know, I um, I mean my parents are so married and they see, oh, for all intents and purposes, great. they seem happy. But, my Barbies would never get married because then they—that was like the death of romance and adventure. So even as right. like a young child, I was like, no, you know, marriage and right. domesticity is just the opposite—the the death of of everything that's exciting. That too. Yes, I
1: thought that too. But how long have you been married? I've been married now. 14 years, years. Okay. So you know that there's something really special about a long relationship. Mm-hmm. It's different. It's very different than the first throws, but it's something like so rich and, and deep and um, and amazing. Did you have a wedding wedding? Cause I, I wanted to just elope. love. I said, you know, I, we were talking about this
0: last night. We did. It was very small. It was 50 people and it was in our, my parents' backyard and it was oh, nice. like very, um, very much just sort of personal and intimate, but I sort of bought in a little bit. I had the white dress and, like, all the things, and I think if I were to do it again, it would just be, like, a little party or go to the courthouse mm. or something. What's but funny is... You, or, you, or you didn't.
1: No, I mean, well, we had a we had a wedding, I mean, because... His parents really wanted it, and I thought, "Okay, fine, fine." um The ceremony itself was very small. it was only like twenty people um and then the party, the reception immediately afterwards was big, but I wore a blue black velvet dress, and everybody was saying, how are they going to know you're the bride? And I would say, well, if they don't own the bride, then they shouldn't be here. That's and, true. you know, we played the Ramones, and we had a whole lot of fun, and um if I had to do it again, I want the white dress, you know? Really? I, think- I do. I do. Think- too. I mean I don't want a fancy white dress, but sometimes I walk by and I see these simple, beautiful white dresses and I think, Oh, I wish I had that on the veil. That would have been cool, but Huh. The total opposite.
0: Because I did the simple white dress with the veil and I'm like, no, I wish I just like
1: worn the black velvet dress <laughs> or whatever. <laughs> it's such That's a funny. You want you always want yeah you always want something different but um no it was fun it was a fun it was a it was fun it was like a weird thing to be married
0: you know
1: and I you know I kept my own name and it did you did too yeah that was you know my in-laws were like oh, what are well, you gonna call the children and at that time I wasn't planning to have children immediately after we married so I said I don't know call them Jake as <laughs> her last name, but you know things change as you, as you change as you change
0: that's true, yeah, um, oh boy, I just had a question, and I lost it about marriage. oh, yeah, so how long have you been married, and tell me a little bit about your marriage and how it's changed and
1: deepened we've been married, we've been married twenty nine years, and it's been amazing it's been absolutely amazing it's i You know, it's actually, I got married, my first marriage, I got married when I was really young. I was like 20 or something, and it just, it just was wrong. It was in, um, it was in the suburbs, so I lived in the suburbs of Pittsburgh, and there was a lot of pressure for me to be, my first husband was a lawyer, and I was supposed to be a lawyer's wife, and then he was cheated on me, and so I just, you know, I just left the marriage and said, okay, I'm going to New York. And of course my parents said, no, don't do that. He's going to like find somebody else and what will you do? And I said, I don't know. I'll figure something else to do. So I, um, I, you know, I didn't really want to settle down. And when I met, I met Jeff through, um, it was actually, sorry, I shouldn't be embarrassed, but it was through New York Magazine used to have these personal ads. You know, and, and it was like four lines. That was all you could have. It was very expensive. Like four, like every line was $150. So in like 1990, that was a lot of, that was a lot of money for a four line ad and you can't say that much. So I was sort of like dating people and I wasn't, you know, there was nobody who seemed like quirky enough and I was about to give it up when I heard from Jeff and he wrote me this really funny letter about how he likes adventure and he doesn't you know he's not going to sit in front and watch football and he likes books and And we met and for our first date he took me to there's a a totally japanese mall in new jersey which is incredible it has like you can buy all these japanese foods and there's this japanese toy store for all these monsters wind up monsters and it, it all like came together really, really quickly, and I thought, oh, I, I want to be with this person. But when he proposed to me, which was two years later, I thought, like, no, I don't want to. I don't want to marry. I definitely don't want to marry again. And I told him, I'll stay with you forever, but I don't want to get married. And he said, okay, well, if you change your mind, let me know. And it took me like another two years while we were living together, and I said, okay, I want to get married. Okay, let's try it because it seemed like an adventure it seemed like okay you know this is a. Uh, were you like that or did you just suddenly want to get married kind of yeah I never
0: really dreamt about weddings or being a bride or anything like that and my husband and I lived together I think for five years or something yeah right yeah yeah and then it just kind of seemed like the thing that would happen next does your tattoo say yes
1: it does Oh I loved that is so yep. bizarre, do you know? That's so weird because I had a t shirt and I embroidered the word yes on it. I thought really? that was just like perfect yeah. Oh yeah my yeah gosh. yeah. It fell apart in the wash, but I I <laughs> loved that. I thought that's the, the perfect Yeah. It's, it's the um, it's my first ta- this
0: is a total digression, but my first tattoo and it says yes because it is Molly Bloom's last word of
1: Ulysses. And I love that right. she that's has right. the
0: last word in this.
1: She has list. the last word, and it's yes. And it's, a yes. it's and yes. I was like, there you go. It's the best word. It's the best word. The best word.
0: So, <laughs> so tell me, <laughs> this is great. Um, tell me if marriage and relationships—I'm sure it does—factors into your work at all. And is there a passage you might read us that's related in some way to marriage and? Oh yeah.
1: There is that yeah, it does always. It does it does always. I'm trying to think of like how to find the passage because um in this book pictures of you, Isabel really wants to marry Charlie, but Charlie can't marry her until he finds out what happened to his wife. Um uh, uh, let me see if I can find it. Um Oh I'm sorry, I can't find it. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I should have I should have let me see if maybe I can find something in here. Oh wait, yes. wait. I have something about my problem with like the organic spur yes. the moment readings. Okay. This is from Cruel Beautiful World, my novel okay. about the sixties and seventies. This is about this one character in there, Iris, who is she's she's in her late eighties and she's in one of those awful retirement homes. And to her surprise, she fell in love. And her grown daughter Charlotte is just um It's just completely gobsmacked that they are together, and this is where he's going to, where she realizes that um, they're going to get married. Charlotte didn't know what to make of it. The way Joe took care of her mother, the way she looked at him. Charlotte had heard of late in life romances, people hurling themselves into love because it was the last chance, or maybe they just wanted companionship. Or maybe they were just discovering that everything that had kept them from real love no matter, didn't matter anymore. But this felt different. She sat opposite the two of them in a floral side chair she found in a vintage store. And the kind of heat seemed to radiate from them. They were both in their 80s, and maybe they didn't have so much time. Iris was forgetful, and it might get so much worse. But it might also stay the same. Joe's memory could fray, too. And so what? None of that had happened yet. Wasn't it better to have love for a little while than not to have love at all? (laughs) And that's it for that passage. And they do get married in the book. Spoiler alert.
0: (laughs) I love that. Thank you.
1: You're welcome. I always hoped my mom was going to marry the man that she met in her 90s, but they never did. They never but got they together No, they never got married, but they were together for four years, which is great. Wow. Oh, oh.
0: This is sort of an intimate question. You don't have to answer it if Oh no, I love intimate <laughs> questions. Ask <That's> me. <what. laughs> okay, so tell me about marriage because and this is straying a bit from um motherhood but into wifehood, which is fine. Was there ever a moment where you felt restless in marriage? Um and I'll admit that I do. And I love my husband. And we've been together now almost 20 years with, you know. But sometimes I'm like, oh, you know, I wonder what it would be like to date or to explore other relationships.
1: Well, that's the lucky thing. Because with Jeff, if ever, I, he's, if ever I'm restless about anything, I mean, he will just like come into my office and say, go get your coat. We're, we're going to drive upstate. Or he'll say, you know what? I just got us tickets to Thailand, and we're going. So, and I'm always like really, really happy because it's a sort of I never know what's going to happen. So I, no, I never have been restless in my first marriage. I most definitely was, um, and that was a problem um, because I and a lot of the problem was I wasn't living the life I should have been. Living, Which is not to say I have no judgment about anybody who is restless. Um, I just think I'm particularly lucky <laughs> to have somebody who likes to do a lot of spur-of-the-moment stuff oh, yeah. and encourages yeah. me to do it. So that keeps things always like really fun and really interesting. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Absolutely. Tell me a little bit about what you're working on now. Are you always working on the next writing project?
1: I am, I am. I have this, I sold this book called Days of Wonder to Algonquin and I'm just waiting for the final edits, and the final edits, are. they should be coming in a month, and I don't have a pub date for it yet, but I will once I get the edits. So in the meantime, I started another book called The Inseparables, which is about a very long friendship between two women and her daughter, and one of them has a daughter, and they both love the same man, and all this other stuff. And You know, there's a lot of stuff in there about mental health, and a lot of stuff about I've started getting really interested in lighting and lighting design, so I've been writing a lot about that. Um, and yeah, I find that if I don't write, I get cranky. So I have to—I can tell when I haven't written because I get snappish. So I try to write every day. I do that way. You know,
0: it's not so much snappish as just—I um, think it's the restlessness that comes yeah. out, like what am I doing with my life and where should I go and what should I do? And then if I just sit down and work for a while on writing, writing, it helps. And it's like, okay, I'm, I'm moving forward.
1: I think too. I wonder if you have this too. I, when I'm writing, when it's going well, I'm sort of in the zone. It's like my husband can be outside the door screaming, there's a fire. You have to move and I won't hear him. Wow. I won't smell the smoke because I'm in this other world. And the thing is, I really love it. I love being in that other world. It's almost like this parallel universe is going on. Do you get like that? Oh, yeah. Yeah. I think especially
0: um, it's kind of rare in a first draft to feel that for me. Right. right. But it's like once I'm in the story and I'm reworking something, I could just sit there for hours and.
1: Yeah, it's incredible. When you have that, it's sort of, I don't know, it feels so real. It just feels so, so real. And it doesn't always happen. You're right. And that's always a shame.
0: So do you, um, are you, how do I want to phrase this question? Tell me about the writing process. So you have an idea for okay. a book and so do you outline and then are you more of a reviser once you have something on the page or how does it work for
1: you? Okay, I know when I first started out I I never outlined. I just felt it was, you know, the muse was going to come down. and I would just, and so I would end up writing 800-page novels that all had to be, that I would look at and say, what the hell did I do here? Um, and so I, um, you know, I, but that was just the way I worked. And then about 10 years ago, one of my students, my writing students at UCLA said, have you ever heard of story structure? And I said, oh, no. And she said, Well, I have these tapes from John Truby. He's sort of a story structure guru. Why don't you listen to one? Maybe you'll like it. And I said, No, I I don't think I will. So she sent the tapes to me anyway. And I listened to the first one. <coughs> excuse me, and it was it was a revelation. Because he was talking about, you know, always think in terms of what is it the character wants? Is what he wants, you know, what he should have. And there were definite <laughs> steps to arcing a character and I thought well I'll I'll, I think I'll try that and I was afraid that it was going to take away creativity and actually it gave me much more creativity and I used it for my first book the first book I used it with was uh, Pictures of You and that was my first um, New York Times bestseller so I thought oh okay I'll do this so when I'm writing I, I sometimes call it in its purest form it's The Rolling Stones method of plot, where it's you can't always get what you want as related to the character. But if you try sometimes, which is struggle really, really hard, you get what you need, which is something different. Like a rich guy might think he he wants to be a banker and have a trophy wife. So he's got a plan to do that, and he does that, and then he gets that and he's not happy because what he really needs is to open a plant store and marry, you know, the painter next door who has no money but who loves him. So I started learning all these structural things, and I play with them. I have folders and folders and folders for each character, and it takes me like six months, and I draw a synopsis, that will change as I'm writing. And my first draft, I move around. I will, sometimes I will write the last scene. Sometimes I will write the first scene. Um, until I just have the pages. And that's basically my process. <laughs> what do you do? What do you do?
0: I feel like it's changed a lot, actually. Probably in part because of motherhood and right. writing and all these things. Right.
1: Like, I used to
0: just sort of write all this stuff. And then kind of see what came out of it. But now, um, and I've said this on the show before, but with commuting, it's sort of nice. I sit and I dictate to myself, and yeah, and then I can work out the plot as I'm talking, and it takes away the pressure yes. of needing to put words on the page. So the last book, I just sat and I sort of outlined the entire book on a drive once, and then That's so
1: interesting,
0: yeah. And I was like, oh, this. And then I didn't have to write 800 pages of things that didn't fit into the book.
1: That's fair. I think that's a really great idea because a lot of times I will, you know, talk it out to myself to figure out the same thing, to figure out what am I really writing about? Why does this matter to me? And how will it matter to somebody else? Are they going to be bored or what? So that's really interesting. Yeah.
0: Yeah, and I just record that conversation with myself where and, and oh, I love that. say like I that. Oh, that's stupid. Why why stupid? <laughs> <laughs> and then I can just delete that and it's fine and I'm left sort of, <laughs> of the, the it's, never <laughs> it's
1: never stupid. It's never stupid. Exactly.
0: <laughs> yeah. Um were you always writing from the time you were young? Yeah.
1: yeah. I was a um I was just a wild little kid until I got in school and then I got really Shy and I loved books and I learned to read when I was three and I was always reading and my older sister and I <coughs> decided we were both going to be authors. And we wrote these books and illustrated them. And interestingly enough, they were about an orphan who was left a million dollars so she could travel around the world by herself without any parents around. And we would illustrate them and it was really, really fun. So I you know, I will always told people, Well, when I grow up I'm gonna be an author, and they'd say, Oh, that's so cute, isn't that cute? And um I just did, I persevered a lot a whole lot of rejection and, A lot of tears and I'm convinced that, you know, if you don't give up, if you really believe in yourself and you persevere, you never know what could happen and most of the time it's good. Most of the time it's good. Yeah.
0: Oh, you know, I've been thinking a lot about perseverance lately with rejection and, um, this industry is just full of rejection. So what is at the heart of your, um, compulsion to write? What keeps you going when you've been rejected? Or if someone tells you writing is a hobby and not a career, why oh <laughs> what was it that, that you were like, no, this is worth my time and my investment?
1: I got angry when people said that. I was, when I was in high school, I had a teacher who said, oh, I can help all of you with whatever you want to do. Come up and ask me. And I went up and said, well, I want to be a writer. And he drew himself up and sniffed and he said, excuse me, you don't write that well. And I thought, well, screw you. I'll show you. And when I was in college, I had this, I got into this special writing program with this writer who was, he was like the a famous writer at the time, and and he would do everybody's work, and my first time there, he picked up my manuscript like it was garbage, and he actually said, now we'll discuss this garbage, and I started to cry, but I thought, you know what, screw you, and I just sat there, and when he was done, he said, "Bet you're not coming back, are you, and I said, yes, I am. And when I got out of Brandeis, I kept writing, 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 rejection, rejection, rejection. And I finally sent a story into this young writer's contest. And I won. I won first prize. And the first prize was a novel contract. And when that came out as a novel, I sent it to that professor with a note that said, I told you, I told you I would. And he, you know, he sent me back a letter with some nonsense like, well, I just wanted you to work harder. So I don't, I feel like no doesn't mean no. Look, on my ninth book, which was Pictures of You, it was rejected on contract by my then publisher as not being special enough. And I thought, well, I don't have a lot of sales right now, and if you're rejected on your ninth book, you're not going to get a publisher. Uh, and I cried to all my friends and one of my friends said, well, I have an editor at Algonquin. Let me talk to her. And this editor, Algonquin, called me up and said, we want to buy it. And I said, are you sure I don't sell books? And she said, oh, you will now. She took that book. And it got into six printings before it even came out, made the New York Times bestseller list. And that editor who had told me it wasn't special called my agent and asked if I wanted to come back and work with her again. I said, like, no, no, no. So I just feel like, you know what, a rejection is only one person's opinion or two person's opinion. You have to never, never let it get to you because it's not always the truth.
0: I love that. And I love Love that you sent your first book to that man who shot you down. Yeah. Oh yeah. What a power move that was. That was amazing.
1: (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So you you know you don't have to you don't have to take anybody else's opinion really. No. No. And look
0: at thirteen books under the belt and still moving on. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, that's a great place to end. Except I want to leave it open for you um, to have a last word. If there's any um advice or a last thought you'd like to leave fellow writer mother monsters with.
1: Yes, you can have it all. You can do it all. It's just different than what you think it is. Find the moments that matter. If you can only maybe you can only write two hours a day instead of three hours a day, but you'll have that extra hour with your child and how amazing is that. And you it won't always be that way. And always remember that when you're a writer and a mother you're not always going to be with a young child who needs you, and those are the moments to treasure. You know, it's it's just it's just an amazing time, and uh, that's it. And just write. Thank you so much,
0: Caroline. This
1: Thank has you so much, been So much fun. This was hilarious. this was wonderful. Any time I get to laugh,
0: that's great. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Thank you for joining us.
1: Thank you for having me, and thank everybody for being
0: here. Thank you. And thank you all for joining us tonight. If you enjoyed the episode as much as I clearly did, please consider becoming a patron or patroness of Writer Mother Monster to help me keep this show going. You can find details on writermothermonster.com, and I'll look forward to seeing you next week. Thanks,
1: everyone.